and welcome to the summer edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann, and today we go to Edmonton, Alberta, for the first of Nothing More Beautiful, a series of catechesis and witness talks that aims to renew the faithful's relationship with Christ. Nothing More Beautiful is taped at the St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton, and the theme of this first session was In the Image and Likeness of God. It was recorded live in December 2008. We will hear first from the Archbishop of Edmonton, the Most Reverend Richard Smith, and following the catechesis session with Archbishop Smith, we will hear from Leah Singh, the Assistant Director of the Ottawa-based Canadian Organization for Life and Family. And now let's listen to Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton on the topic, In the Image and Likeness of God. Welcome to Nothing More Beautiful. These words we know belong to our Holy Father, who has said on a number of occasions and in a variety of ways that there's nothing more beautiful than knowing the Lord, nothing more beautiful than speaking about the Lord, nothing more beautiful than being a Christian, one who knows and follows Jesus Christ. Tonight we begin our journey of renewal in the beautiful faith of the Church that we might rediscover the truth of Pope Benedict's words. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. That's a quotation from the servant of God, Pope John Paul II of blessed memory, who said that every human life is a question and Jesus Christ is the answer. The question of meaning in life, the question of human destiny, the hungers of the human heart for love, for relationship, for peace, of course, the ultimate question of salvation. All of these find their answer in Jesus. He's the Son of God, truly God and truly human. He reveals to us the truth about God, but he reveals also to us the truth about ourselves. He's the answer to the question that is every human life. Now when we meet Jesus as this one and only truly satisfying answer, we discover for ourselves the truth proclaimed by Pope Benedict XVI in his very first homily as the successor of St. Peter. He said, there's nothing more beautiful than knowing Jesus Christ and telling others of our friendship with him. These words of the Holy Father describe what we are about in this five-year journey that we're launching this evening. Tonight, we begin to delve into the mystery of our faith, our beautiful faith, in which we were first immersed at our baptism. And as we do, we pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us to a new encounter with Jesus Christ through a series of catechetical presentations, such as this one that I'm giving this evening, the essential outlines of the Christian proclamation concerning Jesus Christ and all that he has revealed will be explored. And at the same time, we shall also hear people share with us something of their friendship with Jesus, such as Leah Singh will do this evening. By means of this combination of catechesis and witness, we will discover the truth of the Holy Father's words, 
There's nothing more beautiful than knowing Jesus Christ and telling others of our friendship with him. Now, it's important to emphasize from the very outset that this is not intended as an academic exercise or an information session. This is all about encounter. My hope and prayer is that all who participate in this journey will encounter Jesus Christ, encounter him anew, and discover him as the answer to the question that is every human life. The Christian life stems from and is nourished by this encounter, this deep personal relationship with the Lord. So we begin our reflections this evening with a story about encounter. It's taken from sacred scripture. We'll consider a particular passage from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, and it reads as follows. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him, and he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which translated means anointed. Then he brought him to Jesus. In this episode, John the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God, that is, the one who by the pouring out of his blood would free the world from sin. The disciples, therefore, begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and he poses a question. Now, on the surface, the question seems rather simple, but in truth, It's the one question that determines the direction that we give our lives. What are you looking for? What are you searching for? What are your deepest desires? What answers do you seek? And notice that the disciples do not give a direct answer to that question. What they ask is, Rabbi, where do you live? They cannot put into words what it is that they're looking for. And many times, neither can we. There's a deep longing, a profound yearning in every human heart, and it is often beyond our ability to articulate. We know we want something, but find it difficult to name what that something is. And as a result, we can end up searching in all kinds of different directions and places and find ourselves never satisfied. Tonight, Jesus is posing to us that same question that he first asked those disciples. What are you looking for? The disciples brought to Jesus that human longing beyond words, and what is instructive for us is that they sensed that the answer to their hunger would be found in this person, Jesus, They knew that they needed to be with him. And so they asked, where do you live? 
In answer to their request, Jesus says, come and see. They spend time with the Lord. And after that, Andrew goes running to find his brother Simon, and he tells him, we found the Messiah. Well, that must have been quite the visit. Having spent time with the Lord, Andrew is now utterly convinced that this man, Jesus, is the long-awaited one, anointed by God to save the world. He cannot keep this news to himself, and he runs to tell his brother. There's nothing more beautiful than knowing Jesus Christ and telling others of our friendship with him. Of course, there are other similar stories in the gospel. Take some time and reflect, for example, on the encounter in John chapter 4 between the Samaritan woman and Jesus at Jacob's well. Jesus revealed to her the truth about herself in such a way that she could not help but run to the village saying, come see a man who told me everything I've done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? There's nothing more beautiful. Come and see. Jesus is offering that same invitation to us tonight. Like those early disciples, we know that by spending time with Jesus, we shall find the answer to that question that is the life of each one of us. And this is the heart of our nothing more beautiful journey. Our pilgrimage into the mystery of our faith will lead us through five fundamental truths of Christianity. And this journey will be essentially time spent in the presence of Jesus Christ, a response to his invitation to come and see. I have no doubt that this encounter with the Lord will strengthen within each of us the desire to share with others the good news that is Jesus Christ. Indeed, as members of the church, we share a call to evangelize, to tell others of our friendship with the Lord. In order to do so in a manner that is at once convinced and convincing, we need to be well grounded in this beautiful faith of ours. Who is the person of Jesus Christ? What has he revealed to us about God and about ourselves? How has the person and message of Jesus been handed down to us in the teaching of the church? This and much more will unfold for us over the next five years, beginning this year with a consideration of the beauty of the human person. We take this as our starting point because, as Pope John Paul said, Every human life is a question and Jesus is the answer. By considering what scripture and the church teach us about the nature and the condition of the human being, we are led to a new appreciation of the wondrous love of God for us, of the purpose for which we've been created, and the reason why the Son of God became one of us in Jesus of Nazareth. You're listening to Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton speaking on the topic in the image and likeness of God during the first Nothing More Beautiful session on Salt and Light Radio, the Summer Edition. Tonight's first catechesis, then, on the beauty of the human person takes as its specific focus the expression used in sacred scripture to describe the nature of the human being. 
We have been fashioned, the Bible teaches us, in the image and likeness of God. Of course, we know from Scripture we've also been made male and female. And what this means will be addressed in our February session when we look at the theology of the body, and in our final session in May when we consider our social nature as human beings. Tonight, I'm focusing upon the basis for understanding the dignity, the worth, and the destiny of each and every human being. We're created in the image and likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? The phrase is found in the book of Genesis, in the first chapter, describing God's act of creation, specifically in verses 26 to 31, and it reads thus. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the wild animals and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. God created man in his image, in the divine image he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on this earth. And so it happened. God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. Evening and morning came the sixth day. The essential teaching of this first account of creation is that God is the author of all that exists and that among all creatures, the human being has supreme dignity. Now this point is demonstrated in a number of ways. It's demonstrated where the human being is placed at the summit of the ascending scale of creation and is thus the crowning masterpiece, if you will, of the divine artisan. It's also evident in the fact that everything is ordered to the service of man and woman. Ultimately, though, it is the particular manner of the divine creation of the human which sets humanity apart from all other creatures. Specifically, the human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Now, we notice here two words, image and likeness. In fact, as used in this expression, the words are interchangeable so that really we just have one expression. And that's why you'll notice in subsequent verses of the chapter that they speak of creation simply in God's image. The expression communicates something along the lines of resemblance. Resemblance, but not identity. There are some today that would suggest an equation between the human soul and God. No. God alone is God. The human being is only a creature, but a unique creature. And we need also to consider the verb that's used in the passage. In Hebrew, it is bara, to create. In the scriptures, the only subject of that verb is God. So by using this verb, the sacred author of Genesis is emphasizing that God alone is creator. Creation as a whole is God's work of art, and the human being is his particular masterpiece. We've been created by this God of ours for a purpose, and the expression, image, and likeness conveys the wondrous, beautiful purpose for which God has made us. It means 
that God was to fashion a creature that in some way so corresponds to him that he can address it and that it in turn can listen to his word and respond. Human life proceeds from and is sustained by God's word. When the sacred writer says that God made us in his image, he thus indicates that God created us for relationship. And this is different from all the other ways in which God chooses to relate to his creation. As the teaching of the church puts it, the expression image and likeness means that the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. The only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. From the first moment of creation, the human being is made for relationship with God, for conversation with God, for a sharing in God's own life. And that's not something that's added to human beings. It defines them. The fact that God creates human persons in his image and likeness to be his counterpart in the world establishes the basis of the inviolable and inalienable dignity of the human being. Each member of the human race is therefore an authentic you addressed by the I that is God. Each is called to a dialogical relationship with our creator. In this way, we see that each and every human being is a unique, unrepeatable subject. Not a somebody or a something, but a someone, a person. Pope Benedict put it beautifully when he said in that very first homily, we are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. Now to be created in the image of God, to be fashioned for the purpose of living in a relationship with God, this presupposes that God has given us the gift without which relationship is impossible. That's the gift of freedom. Only if I freely return love to the one who loves first is authentic relationship possible. With freedom, of course, comes responsibility. And here, responsibility consists in the recognition of truth, the truth about God, and the truth about ourselves in relation to God, and living in accordance with that truth. This leads us into the drama of the second and third chapters of Genesis. A brief presentation of their essential teaching is necessary to complete our consideration of the mystery of the human person in this opening catechesis. I'm not gonna read them aloud because their content is well known to us. Those chapters, chapters two and three of Genesis, contain what is called the second account of creation and the story of what is referred to as the fall. To grasp the significance of the drama that unfolds here, I want to focus our attention upon a word and upon a symbol. The word is in Hebrew, afar, translated into English as dust or dirt or clay. 
The sacred writer states that it's out of this dust that the first man was formed by God, who then blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Now we've just had established in chapter one of Genesis, the great dignity of the human being because it's formed in the image of God. By the use of the particular vocabulary of chapter two, a fog, dust, or dirt, the author is underlining the utter poverty and frailty of the human being. Yes, the human person is good and of unsurpassable worth, but the human being remains always a creature, not God, and utterly dependent upon God for the gift of life. That's the word. The symbol in these chapters is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God placed in the middle of the garden, the fruit of which God forbade the man to eat. The Catechism of the Church beautifully summarizes the significance of this tree and the prohibition. It symbolizes the unsurpassable limits of our creaturely condition. Conditions, limits, which must be respected with trust in the love of God. These limits refer to our dependence as creatures on God who fashioned us, as well as to the natural laws and the moral norms that God inserted into creation to guide the use of our freedom. The tree then is an invitation to accept the truth of our creatureliness and our limits and to trust in the providence and in the wisdom of God. But we know what happened. Our first parents chose not to accept that truth and they reached out to pluck and eat the forbidden fruit. In other words, they reached out beyond their limits. They sought to be other than the creatures that they were fashioned to be. That's the first original sin of the human race. Trust in God was allowed to die. They chose themselves over and before God, and they disobeyed the command of the Creator. The result was a shattering of the harmony and unity they had previously enjoyed with God and had shared with one another. Everything fell apart. Separation from God was symbolized in the story by their attempt to hide from the Lord, and their disunity from one another is imaged in the clothing of their nakedness, and it's witnessed in the blaming that followed the sin. Traditionally, we speak of this terrible state of disunity and conflict as our fallen human nature. And this condition did not end with our first parents. As the story of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, we see that it remained a reality in the lives of those who followed. Cain, for example, was jealous of his brother Abel and killed him. So what we have here are some ancient scriptural roots of the church's doctrine on original sin. This doctrine, obviously we can't develop it fully tonight in the time that we have, but it is important to be aware of it to complete the picture of what our faith teaches concerning our nature in relation to God and to God's plan for us. So for now, I'll make just a few essential points. First, the original man and woman did not get into trouble without some help. From our knowledge of the story, we know that they were tempted by the serpent. This creature seduced 
our first parents by means of a lie. The lie was precisely that God was a liar and not to be trusted. The lie was also to make what is bad, eating the forbidden fruit and disobeying God, to make what is bad look very good. The first sin was disobedience caused by surrender to a lie. The second, we know from our own daily experience the truth of our inherited condition. There's a contradiction that exists within us. Our first desire is always to do good, to do what is right. Yet we know that there are within us conflicting desires to do the opposite. To this conflicting desire, the church gives the name concupiscence, a tendency within us to repeat that first sin. That is to say, to surrender to temptation, to prefer falsehood to truth, to rely on ourselves rather than God, and to reach out beyond the limits imposed by our nature and the moral law. The origins of this condition are ultimately a mystery, but experientially, we know that it's true. And finally, we need to avoid two conclusions that could be drawn from this reality of our condition. The first would be to say that the human person is bad or corrupt. No, we have been created in the image and likeness of God. God alone is our creator. God is perfect goodness, and he has fashioned us in his image for himself. Therefore, the church teaches that the human person is essentially good, but ours is a fragile goodness due to the effects within us of that original sin. We're called to be holy, but we're weak and we're vulnerable, unable to attain to holiness on our own. The second conclusion to avoid is that there are two equal opposing forces at work on us, one good, one evil. This goes by the name of dualism, and the church rejects it. In fact, the roots of this rejection are found in the text of Genesis itself. There, the sacred author acknowledges the existence of evil, yes, in the symbolism of the serpent, but the serpent is a creature. As such, it is in no way equal to God. Yes, there's an evil force at work in the world, and its origins are a mystery. However, it can be overcome and is therefore not to be the cause of despair. In fact, when later you review those first three chapters of Genesis, notice how God addresses the serpent after the fall of our first parents. God's first pledge is that evil would be vanquished. God promises that one descended from Eve will come to crush its head to be victorious over evil, in other words. That's Genesis 3.15, a very important verse, which, from the early days of the church, has been called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first proclamation of the gospel. In other words, God's response to the sin of our first parents was not abandonment. It was the promise of mercy, the promise to overcome the power of the evil one, God has made us in his image, he's made us for himself, and that purpose of God will not be thwarted. The beautiful news of the gospel is that God has fulfilled this ancient promise, that evil has been overcome 
through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On this note, let's return to where we began, to the story of that encounter between Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist. Recall that Jesus invited them to come and see where he lived, but we're not told exactly where Jesus was dwelling. This is because in the deepest sense, Jesus does not dwell in any particular earthly place. Where Jesus does dwell is indicated by St. John in another place in his gospel, namely chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It is the only Son who is nearest to the Father's heart who has made him known. Jesus is the Son of God who dwells in the heart of the Father. From the heart of the Father, he has come to the world. He has come to those who have been fashioned in the image and likeness of God and to those who thus have been called to a communion of love with God. He has come to those in whom this image has become disfigured by sin so that the image might be restored to its beauty. Jesus Christ, in whom all things were made, recognizes the deep beauty of every human being fashioned in God's image, and he has come to restore us to life by his cross and resurrection. So I invite you to join with me in this journey to a new encounter with our Lord, who said, come and see. And what will we discover? We'll discover that in Jesus Christ, we are restored to God. From Jesus, therefore, we draw true life. And there is nothing more beautiful than this. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio, heard Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on the Catholic Channel, Series 159 and XM 117, and on the Internet at saltandlighttv.org radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. And tonight we bring you the first of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the Archdiocese of Edmonton. Today's topic is In the Image and Likeness of God, and we just heard the catechesis session by Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton. The witness talk will be given by Leah Singh, the Assistant Director of the Canadian Organization for Life and Family from Ottawa. Pope Benedict has said, there's nothing more beautiful than being a Christian. Why did he say that? I would have expected him to say that there's nothing better than being a Christian, but instead he associated beauty and Christianity. In our culture, we are taught to think of beauty as what we see on the front pages of magazines or in material things like beautiful cars or beautiful homes. But the gospel calls us to dig deeper. Seeing beauty on the outside is just the most superficial way of seeing. One of the times when these two understandings of beauty became very clear for me was in 1997 when Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died within a couple of months of each other. 
Princess Diana was an icon of the world's understanding of beauty. But Mother Teresa was a witness to the words of Pope Benedict, there's nothing more beautiful than being a Christian. It was her life that glowed like a bright lamp with the authentic beauty of the gospel. It's true that often, the beauty of the gospel is first revealed to us through other people. Even when we pick up the gospel and read it, often we don't really understand its beauty until we see it lived out in the lives of other people. For me, the beauty of the gospel first shone out through my grandfathers. I was born Catholic, and I was introduced to the gospel from childhood, so I grew up familiar with its stories. But as a child, and even as a young adult, the gospel itself didn't speak as loud to me as the lives I saw lived out by my grandfathers. They were both faithful Catholics who took me to Mass and taught me about the faith. I looked up to them as a child because I knew they were good and wise, and I knew that their goodness and their wisdom had to do with their faithfulness to the gospel. One of my grandfathers is still alive, and to this day he continues to inspire me with his faith. He's a legionary of Mary, and I'm so grateful to him because I know that his prayers have interceded for me so many times in my life and helped me to, stray, to, to stay on the right path. <laughs> I was born in communist Czechoslovakia, and the communists were not on good terms with Catholics. My grandfathers had both lost their careers because of their faith, and other members of my family had also suffered in various ways. So when I was eight years old, my family escaped from Czechoslovakia and came to Canada as political refugees. We were sent to Edmonton, and I grew up here and in St. Albert, going to various public and Catholic schools. At that time, I think I took the gospel for granted. I always had faith in God, and I never doubted that the gospel was true. But I didn't think about it very deeply, either. We went to Mass on most Sundays, but I didn't understand Christianity as something that changes your entire life, including weekdays. My personal prayer life was pretty weak in those days. In fact, I didn't understand prayer very well at all. I thought you only prayed in order to ask God for something. At that time, I was quite ambitious. When I was deciding on high schools, I went to see the guidance counselor at Archbishop MacDonald High School. And my mother tells me that to her great embarrassment, I told him that I wanted to go to Harvard and if Archbishop MacDonald could prepare me for that. Well, at that time, we were poor immigrants and it just seemed so ridiculous to say something like that. Still, I did well in school and on the debate team, and in grade 11, I won a provincial scholarship 
to an international school in Wales, in the UK, called the United World College of the Atlantic. I spent two years there with international students from all over the world. At that time, I went to Mass fairly frequently, though not every Sunday, as I didn't realize it was an obligation. But again, I didn't reflect that deeply on the Gospel. After high school, I went to university at probably the least known American Ivy League school, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and I majored in international relations. After Dartmouth, I was accepted into Harvard Law School, my longtime dream. Once I got into Harvard, for a while I became quite proud of myself. My professors were some of the most famous names in the legal world, and the name Harvard seemed like a secret code word that opened every door. In his welcome speech, our dean assured us that from now on, our lives would be easy. The hard part was getting into Harvard, but once we were in, almost no one ever failed out of there. But that's when things started really changing in my life, in a way I had not expected. Once I settled into my nice apartment right next to the law school campus, I started feeling a little odd. This moment was supposed to be a major victory in my academic life, and yet it all felt so strangely hollow and empty. My major goal had been accomplished, and well, now what? The accomplishment had not brought me the happiness, joy, and fulfillment that I hoped for. And I started to suspect that no matter what else I eventually did and achieved in life, I would get the same empty feeling in the end. Basically, I started thinking about the ultimate meaning in life. What is all this for? I already suspected the answer to my question because I knew that there was something that I had never given enough time and thought to, and yet I always believed that it was God's word to us, the gospel. To turn somewhere else would have been to run away from the truth. And in some ways, I had already been doing that for a long time by focusing on myself instead of paying closer attention to God. But now, the time had come for me to face the truth of the gospel, and I didn't want to turn away this time, because finally I was hungry for real meaning in life. Again, I think it had to do with the prayers of my grandfather in the Czech Republic. I had a good friend at Harvard at that time who happened to be a very strong Catholic. She was starting a prayer group, and I decided to join it. That prayer group had a very important influence on my life. We prayed together, we discussed the faith, and we chanted the Liturgy of the Hours which I came to love and to pray on my own. I started reading the Gospel again, and I also started to read other faith writings, such as The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, which guides towards detachment from the world and a complete communion with God. Eventually, I asked a priest I knew to be my spiritual advisor and to guide my spiritual development. There's something magnetically beautiful 
about the truth. And it draws us in. And once we take the gospel seriously and read it as an account of our salvation, then just as happened to St. Paul in the gospel, it's as if the scales fall from our eyes. Indeed, the gospel invites us to live in truth. And this means to live authentically and deeply rather than superficially. The gospel tells us what we were made for, where we're going, and how we can get there. It tells us what's really important in life, and it invites us to live according to that. An English poet once said, truth is beauty, beauty truth. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. But that isn't exactly right. Beauty is not just truth, it's also goodness. And the gospel shows us that. The gospel is beautiful not only because it's true, but also because it's the good news. Because it tells us a wonderful message that our Creator loves us so much that He died for us. The ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is beautiful, even as, as it is a horrible and painful death, because it reveals the depth of our Father's love for us. And in the end, isn't love the most beautiful thing in the world? This love showered upon us by our Heavenly Father gives us great joy, hope, and peace. Well, once I started to go deeper into the faith and to develop a relationship with Christ through real prayer, where there isn't only petition, but also adoration, atonement, and thanksgiving, I started to develop a sincere love for God. For the first time, an actual relationship was forming between me and my Heavenly Father, and it did change my life. Pope Benedict said on the eve of World Youth Day in 2005 that being a Christian is like having wings. The gospel sets us free in a profound way because it sets us free to do the right thing. It tells us the truth about ourselves, and so it sets us free to live out our purpose. We can allow ourselves to be transformed and we can work on changing the world for the better because we know what's really important and we have the strength to live it out through our relationship with Jesus Christ. You're listening to Leah Singh of the Canadian Organization for Life and Family speaking on the topic In the Image and Likeness of God during the first Nothing More Beautiful series of the Archdiocese of Edmonton on Salt and Light Radio, the Summer Edition. It was at that time of my life when my life started taking a new direction. I had entered law school wanting to do international human rights law. But as my faith deepened and as I grew in my understanding of how the international system functioned, I realized that the United Nations and other international institutions were often not promoting the values that were becoming more and more important to me. I wondered why it was that many organizations within the UN 
which started out after the Second World War with an excellent document called Universal Declaration of Human Rights, were losing their way these days in trying to promote so-called reproductive and sexual rights as fundamental human rights. Why is it that even organizations like Amnesty International are now fighting for abortion as an international human right around the world? I believe it is because we need the gospel to keep us on track. The gospel teaches us about our human worth and dignity and about our rights and responsibilities towards one another. But without the gospel, we start to make the rules ourselves. And when that happens, we can get terribly confused and mistaken. Amnesty International was started by a Catholic. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was inspired largely by Christian values. But with the growing secularism of the world, there's also a growing darkness in our understanding of morality and human rights. Today, public international law is often being used as a weapon against true human dignity. So by the time I wrote my thesis on the International Criminal Court, I was sure I didn't want to go into this field of law. But I didn't know quite what else to do. So like many law school graduates, I ended up in the big New York law firm doing corporate law. In some ways, it was a fine life. We had long hours, to be sure, but we also had prestige and high incomes. It was easy to get used to the high life, but by that time, I was already beyond being interested in that kind of life. The work at the law firm was intellectually stimulating enough, but again, I was finding it empty and hollow. I felt like I was living a split personality. On the one hand, I loved to pray, to read religious books, and to attend faith activities, but my daily work consisted of the financial restructuring of corporations, and I just didn't see a link between the two. I started to meditate a lot on the parable of the rich young man. It, start, it felt like a sign for me at that time of my life. I felt the need to give more of myself, to serve Christ more directly, and I didn't want to walk away from God's invitation. I finally realized that I needed to let go of my own ego and ambitions even more and to be completely open to God's will for me. I even considered the idea that maybe I was called to the religious life and I discerned with three wonderful orders on the East Coast. But I finally discerned that the religious life was not my calling. On the plane home from the last religious order, I knew that God had to be calling me to something else. And I prayed again that he would show it to me. Just then, I opened a magazine that I had taken with me, and I saw an article about a nonprofit organization that lobbied at the UN in New York called the Catholic Family and Human Rights Institute. It was the answer to my prayer. CFAM, as it is called, would give me a chance to openly work towards the kinds of changes that I supported at the UN, to defend the gospel vision of human dignity, and to help build a culture of life. 
I had given up on doing that through international human rights law. But now I saw that this organization was a way to do something positive about the sad fate of the international human rights community. By divine providence, they just happened to be looking for someone to take over their New York office. So one year after I joined the law firm, I quit and I became the legal counsel of CFAM. My pay went down by about two-thirds. I moved down to a much smaller apartment that I shared with a roommate, and I took buses instead of private cab rides. But I had never felt happier in my life. For the first time, I really had a feeling that I was doing what I was made for by God and that I was more closely following the teachings of the gospel. But God wasn't finished with me yet. Very soon after starting at CFAM, God also sent into my life a Catholic man named Jasper, a convert from Sikhism. And this man eventually became my husband. He lived in Ottawa, so after we got to know each other, I decided to move back to Canada so that we could better discern God's will for us in marriage. After much prayer, Jasbir found the job ad that brought me back to Canada, my current position as the Assistant Director of the Catholic Organization for Life and Family in Ottawa. So a year after joining CFAM, I left New York, and a year later, Jasbir and I were married and now we're expecting our first child. <laughs> as far as my work at the, at the Catholic Organization for Life and Family, or CALF, some of you might remember us from last year when we held a two-day symposium on the theology of the body right here in Edmonton. That symposium was such a success that we held a second one this year in Quebec City. CALF is a national organization and it's co-founded and co-sponsored by the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Supreme Council of the Knights of Columbus. The chairman of our board of directors is Bishop Jean Gagnon from the Gaspé Diocese. CALF's mission is to build a culture of life and a civilization of love here in Canada by promoting respect for human life and dignity and the essential role of the family. Our mission, like that of many pro-life organizations, is motivated by the beauty of the gospel. One of the documents that expresses the foundation of our work is Evangelium Vitae, the encyclical letter of John Paul II, which translates as the gospel of life. The Gospel teaches us about the incredible dignity and value of human life as created and beloved by God and destined for a future with Him in Heaven. It's because of this Gospel teaching that we know human life is sacred from conception to natural death. Without this teaching, it's easy to see human life as having little value. And we see that all around us in things like abortion, euthanasia, and the many attacks on the life of the embryo, including stem cell research and various reproductive technologies. I feel privileged to work for CALF because I'm doing what I love. My work is a direct form of evangelization 
because we produce educational documents, we intervene in the public square, and in various other ways, we seek to share the truth of the gospel with our society. I hope that my story will inspire and encourage some of you in your own life journey. But I wouldn't want you to leave here tonight thinking that to live out the gospel, we all need to become nonprofit activists or missionaries. It's true that the gospel cannot stay within its, the beauty of the gospel cannot stay within its pages. We as Christians are all called to the same mission of being witnesses to the beauty of the gospel. Ideally, just by looking at how we live and conduct our lives, others should be able to perceive the beauty of the gospel without even having read a single word. Because they see how the gospel has transformed us from within. In fact, many people may only ever pick up the gospel if we spark their interest in it through the example of our well-lived lives. But while we have the same mission, we all fulfill it in very different ways, and often it's through our ordinary work, whether in the public or private sectors, whether as CEOs, teachers, taxi drivers, or stay-at-home moms. We have a chance to give witness by performing our work well, by taking opportunities to befriend our colleagues and offering them a Christian perspective on things, by planting little seeds on our daily path, by praying for others we encounter along the way, by offering our daily work and our difficulties to the Lord, and by being role models of Christian virtue wherever we go. The fact is, good Catholics are needed in every single occupation, everywhere in our society. Like Mother Teresa said, it's not about doing great things, but about doing small things with great love. The main thing we are called to do is to discern the path that God has marked out for each of us. We can begin that discernment not by asking, what do I want to do? But through prayer, by asking where he wants to lead us. And by quietly and actively listening. A good way to begin is by reading the gospel. The other important thing that I would like to share is the words that John Paul II spoke so often. Do not be afraid. Sometimes we may find that God is asking us to make changes in our lives that require courage on our part. This was true in my own life as well. It's not easy to leave the secure world of the law firm with its many advantages. But my deep desire to serve Christ made, made it more easy in the end to find the courage to act. So I would like to conclude with the words of John Paul II at World Youth Day 2000. Words that have inspired me throughout my own journey. My dear young people of every continent, do not be afraid to be the saints of the new millennium. Be contemplative, love prayer, be coherent with your faith and generous in the service of your brothers and sisters. Be active members of the church and builders of peace. To succeed in this demanding project of life, continue to listen to his word.
You've been listening to the first of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the beautiful St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton, Alberta. The topic of today's session was In the Image and Likeness of God, and we heard from Edmonton Archbishop, the Most Reverend Richard Smith, who was followed by Leah Singh, Assistant Director of the Ottawa-based Canadian Organization for Life and Family. For more information on the Nothing More Beautiful series, you can visit the Edmonton Archdiocesan website, C-A-E-D-M, that's Catholic Archdiocese of Edmonton, C-A-E-D-M dot C-A, and click on the Nothing More Beautiful link where you can also watch videos of all the sessions. Nothing More Beautiful also airs on Salt and Light Television every Friday evening, and the new season begins again in November. To listen to any part of this broadcast that you may have missed, or to download any Salt and Light radio program, visit our website, saltandlighttv.org. All messages can be sent to radio at saltandlighttv.org, and to read our blog, visit saltandlighttv.org slash blog. Thank you for being with us. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Talk to you next time on Salt and Light Radio, the summer edition.